the Talking Race podcast from the Centre for Race, Education and Decoloniality at Leeds Beckett University. Welcome to the final episode in this series of Talking Race. Coming up, we'll be talking about white privilege and neoliberalism, exploring how race is embedded in every piece of digital technology we use, what motivates online racism, how it can be challenged, and how you should prepare yourselves for a battle if you speak out against racism online. Today I'm joined by Leeds Beckett University Senior Lecturer Rachel Boyle. Rachel is based at the Carnegie School of Education and teaches and researches on race, racism and ethnicity. In January 2020, her appearance on Question Time caused the Twittersphere to erupt. Rachel will be recounting this somewhat unsettling and uncomfortable experience. I'm also joined by Jesse Daniels. Professor of Sociology at Hunter College in New York and at the Graduate Centre. Her main area of interest is in race and digital media technologies. She is an internationally recognised expert on internet manifestations of racism. Daniels is the author or editor of five books including White Lies and Cyber Racism. So today we're joined with Professor Jesse Daniels and Rachel Boyle. And the first question is to you, Rachel. Now, although we're at episode six in the podcast, can you just give us a quick reminder of what racism is? Okay, racism can be defined as the manifestation of contempt or hatred for people who have different physical characteristics than our own so race is a socially constructed notion based on uh, physical appearance exactly now over to you jesse now you literally wrote the book cyber racism which is what this podcast episode is all about are you able to provide us with a definition of what cyber racism actually is Yeah, when I talk about cyber racism, I usually refer to it as internet manifestations of racism. The definition that Rachel gave of racism is an excellent one. It's funny, though, even though I have a book called Cyber Racism, it's not actually a term that I use much anymore, simply because we're like most people don't say cyber about the internet or whatever it is that we're doing online. A lot of times people talk about the digital. Some people refer to digital racism. The problem with both those definitions, cyber racism or digital racism, those terms, is that it kind of assumes that the internet is this other place that we go. And we might have thought that, you know, in the early 90s or something, but today we think of, you know, the internet of things, artificial intelligence, the internet is in our phones we carry it with us all the time so it's not like it's a place apart the way we used to think of it and you mentioned the 90s there and again and that links nicely into my next question and at its inception the internet was widely believed to be this race neutral utopia of freedom it was a paradise 
1993, the New Yorker published this now infamous cartoon, which said on its caption, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Having said that, how significant is race online, Jesse? I think it's really true that race is embedded in every technology that's been created, every digital technology that's been created that we that we touch, that we put our hands on, that we um, enter into every every day. There was this mythology, and it lasted well beyond that 1993 cartoon that you mentioned about the internet, that it was going to be this raceless, genderless, bodiless utopia where we would be frictionless. We would just exist. And that really comes from a, a very specific set of ideas about the creation of the internet. It's referred to as the California ideology because it's really rooted in John Perry Barlow's manifesto of freedom in cyberspace. And he had this notion that was very rooted in sort of libertarianism about the internet, that it was going to be this place that was going to free us from all these, you know, the bondage really of capitalism and of bodies and of race and of gender and all that. It was just going to be free. And you've heard the expression, the information wants to be free. It comes from that set of ideas. And and that's still really prevalent in the United States and the way that we think about the internet. The nonprofit organization, Internet Electronic Frontier Foundation, was actually started in part by John Perry Barlow and a lot of their pushback on government regulation of the internet is rooted in that kind of idea that the internet is this other space that where information wants to be free. The next question really is to you, Rachel. I'll just read some statistics first to show the extent of online racism that goes on. In 2018, Amnesty International reported that black women in journalism and politics were 84 more likely than white women to be mentioned in abusive tweets. It's very undermining, it's very humiliating, and it gets so you almost don't want to go online in the morning, you don't want to go on Twitter because you know what you're going to see, and in fact for long periods of time I don't go on Twitter because I know what I'm going to see. Now people of colour, women, anyone who challenges the racial status quo often becomes targets of racism and abuse online. Now, Rachel, you've experienced this firsthand and you were at the centre of a national news story in Britain in 2020. Are you able to share your experience and tell us a little bit about what happened? Yeah, it was in January of this year. The furore of January should have warned us what the rest of 2020 was going to be like. Um, I appeared on a political television programme, BBC television programme Question Time, in January as a member of the audience. There were obviously, as there is with Question Time, there were a panel of guests, one of which was an actor whose name I won't mention because I don't mention his name publicly anymore, who comes from a, as an acting dynasty family from the UK. The topic of conversation in terms of the question that was asked by another audience member was about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. And during that week, it had been announced that they were going to leave the royal family, etc. And a question was asked about what the panel thought of both Meghan and Harry. One of 
the panel members responded to the question and then they brought it back to the audience. It was specifically around the press treatment of Meghan Markle and I was called upon for comment. The problem we've got with this is that Meghan has agreed to be Harry's wife and then the press have torn her to pieces. And let's, let's be really clear about what this is. Let's call it by its name. It's racism. She's a black woman. And she has been it's torn not racism. to pieces. You can't she just... has been torn to pieces. It's not racism. It absolutely no, it's is. Not. We're the most tolerant, lovely country uh, in Europe. Let's says celebrate our it's so easy to throw the charge of racism at everybody, and it's really starting what to get boring. What worries me about your comment is, you are a white privileged male who has oh, no experience. Oh. I mean, can I just... I can't I... help what I am. I was born like this. It's an immutable so you, characteristic, so, so to call cannot, me a white privileged male is to be racist. You're being racist. You cannot dismiss. Okay. So the show was then broadcast about an hour after we finished filming. And I have, I've been on Twitter at that point for about a year and a half, and I had about 850 followers, and most of those followers were my students from the university where I teach. And I woke up the next morning, and it was 5,000, and then it just continued right up to 20,000. All of the national newspapers got in touch with me. The clip went viral. Well, he's been called the definition of white privilege for his outspoken views, but for others, he's the ultimate anti-woke hero. He is the actor and musician Lawrence Fox, who's found himself at the centre of a media storm for his views on racism. I was interviewed by The Guardian slash Observer newspaper. I didn't speak to anybody else. I refused to speak to anybody else. And I appeared on the front page of The Observer on the Sunday. And then the online communications that came to me sort of grew and grew and grew and have never stopped since. What a, an amazing story that is to recount as well. And I think in, in a few moments or in a few questions, Sam, we'll run through the, the impact of what happened online following that. But just that, mm-hmm. that provides a really nice moment to just remind the listeners of the term white privilege. What exactly is that? White privilege is a term that's used to describe people of white backgrounds in terms of how they are able to navigate their lives minus the discrimination that comes with being non-white. So the next question moves over to you, Jesse. And like Rachel, you're very active on Twitter. You've got a lot of Twitter followers. And back in 2018, I saw that you faced some criticism after tweeting some of your thoughts that were based on your research can you tell us a little bit about what happened here? Yeah, it was actually it was actually in the fall of 2017, and I um, but it continued well into 2018, and and even today. Um, so I was on Twitter and just spending time there. It's it's useful for me because it's often the way I work through ideas, talk to people that I, you know, other sociologists talk to them about ideas. It was actually a friend of mine and a sociologist, Crystal Fleming who had posted a question, uh, she was saying for white people, white people who consider yourselves allies to the cause of racial justice, if you've lost family or friends over your racial justice activism, what's the impact been for you? So I was thinking about that question and I actually, it's a longer story that I write about elsewhere, but I actually 
was basically dis- disowned by my by my family for my racial justice activism. And so I started talking about white families as really engines of reproducing white supremacy. And I said in very plain terms that it's white families that reproduce white supremacy and started talking about some really, you know, for sociologists kind of basic ideas about you know, the racial gap, the white and black racial gap in the United States is quite stark. The white families own, you know, uh, many multiples of 10 more wealth than black families do. And the way that that usually gets talked about, though, is in terms of black deficit. What are black people doing wrong? How are they spending their money? Why can't they earn more money? Why can't they save more money? And I was really just turning that lens around and saying, what is it about white families that perpetuates that inequality? And part of it is about holding on to white wealth, but it's also about the way that white families are constituted, that if you are not going to uphold whiteness, then you're going to be disowned, you're going to be set out, you're going to be disbarred from that family, as it were. And of course, I mean, I kind of knew it at the time when I was writing this tweet thread, I thought, you know, for people who are not in the struggle, for people who are on the far right, they're going to not hear this message that I have to say. And sure enough, it wasn't long after I had done that tweet thread that it got picked up by Alex Jones on Infowars. And I, I sort of wasn't paying attention to Twitter. I went on and did some, you know, the rest of my day. And I was just walking into a class and I got a text message from a friend. It was actually from Dana Boyd. And she said, freaking Alex Jones. And then just hugs. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is bad. This is very bad. And then I went into my office and looked online and just typed in Alex Jones plus my name. And there was my image and my tweet thread and was on his website. And from there, I mean, just as a sociologist who studies this stuff, it was really interesting because it just it just refracted through the whole right wing media ecosphere. And it wasn't, I think it was probably within 24 hours that I was getting phone calls from Tucker Carlson, you know, to be on Fox News and that sort of thing. I declined. So that was all very interesting. What was less interesting and more concerning and very troubling was that then they started calling my institution. They started calling my department colleagues. They started calling the, you know, the administrative staff of my department. They started calling my dean, my provost, the president of my college. And then it became a, you know, a controversy in my institution. And, you know, and that just, for me, it launched me on thinking about the way that race and digital technologies are affecting the way that we do our jobs as academics. You know, I think it's really becoming weaponized in a particular kind of way. Based on your experiences, then, I'm just wondering, because you've encountered quite high volumes of abuse directed towards the both of you by, say, the far right. How does it feel? I mean, for somebody who's going through that, what is that like? We'll go to you, Rachel. What What is it like when you're living through that storm on Twitter at that time? To be totally honest, there wasn't an ounce of me that was surprised by it. You don't do the work that I do on racism without expecting some kind of battle. We didn't come into this realm for a quiet life. We didn't engage with this aspect of research so that everybody would agree with us. And when it happened, everybody around me, so everyone that was close to me, my family and my close friends were all like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening. And I was just like, yeah, well, I can. (laughs) 
And I knew in the moment, I sat in the audience of that program and thought, I have a choice here. I can say this, I can challenge this man, or I can stop. And at no point did I think or even waver about, yeah, okay, I'm going to stop talking now. Because that's my duty. And the moment the words left my mouth, I knew that something was, was going to happen. The man next to me, who was sitting next to me in the audience, who I didn't know, just leant over to me and said, that's going to go viral and started laughing. So as soon as that seed was planted, I was prepared for the backlash. What I wasn't prepared for was the backlash from my own community. So I had backlash from the far right. And I was like, yeah, yeah, keep it coming. That's, you know, totally to be expected. But I had backlash from the black community who told me that I wasn't black enough. Now, I'm mixed race. I have a white mother. My father's family are from Barbados and Sierra Leone. And I'm pale skinned, straight hair. And I was told that I wasn't black and I shouldn't be commenting. I had a lot of those comments, obviously, from the far right. But those small number of comments from my own community, they that was the point at which... I was brought to my knees because I was like, oh my word, this is not what I expected. And I didn't say anything to offend anybody. What I said was to challenge a man who had no experience of the, the context expressing his opinion. So for me, it wasn't the far right. Yeah, totally to be expected. These people are always going to pop up. They've got, you know, they've got very specific profiles. It was other people. What did that feel like? That made me feel like I did when I was a kid. So growing up in England in the 1980s as a mixed race child with light skin was not a comfortable space to be in. Most of my family, my dad's family, all live in New York, Jesse, funnily enough. And I spent a significant amount of my life in New York. And I would hear one, you know, one opinion and one viewpoint about what I was ethnically and then I'd come back to Britain and I'd hear something completely different so my life has been very much I've lived in a juxtaposition all the time but to be faced with that abuse from my own community at that point really blew me away. I think in terms of the volume then of the abuse that you faced Jesse I mean could you give us a number in terms of the, the types of messages you were receiving or how many were abusive what did they say? Are you able to share some of that? Yeah, I mean, it was really, again, I mean, at first I was just so, <laughs> I was just so fascinated. I wanted to start a spreadsheet of, of the kinds of responses that I got. I didn't, but I would, I would say that around 65, 70% were just simply outraged. It was, it was really that kind of, how could you, a white woman, say these things? It was just really in that, I think I shocked people. That was really, I think, the first thing. And then I would say that there were another solid 20% that were, that were very short and very pointed and very violent. They were either death threats or rape threats and often a combination of death and rape threats. We want you to die and be raped in this particular way. And then another, you know... I don't know what percentage I'm at now. The rest of them were just a little unhinged. But the thing that most people will say about the internet and about abuse that gets hurled on the internet is that um, people are anonymous and so they feel they can say anything. And that wasn't my experience at all. I would say the vast majority of the messages that I got, including the really violent ones, people left 
all kinds of identifying information in their emails, like with their full signature file of their name, their address, their phone number. I mean, it was really fascinating to me the way that people felt, I would say, emboldened to be themselves in these hateful kind of ways. And, and that was kind of surprising to me. One other thing I just wanted to say, so the volume of that you asked about the volume, and it was, it was in the... It was in the range of thousands of messages, and I, I lost count, but and it, it came through every digital mechanism that I was connected to. So I had a couple of emails, and the messages came to both emails. It came through Twitter. It came through Facebook, which I don't look at much, but it just sort of like if I was online anywhere, it came through those different places. Rachel, you've gone through something very similar, and I'm just wondering if you share some of those experiences. Certainly issues of intersectionality, and I think they were (laughs) the fact that I'm mixed race, the fact that I'm a woman, the fact that I'm from the North as well. There were certainly those, you know, those three areas overlapping to create some kind of hatred. I had some very, as Jesse's talked about this, very explicit communications that were around sexual violence and violence generally those were both online and then people wrote to me at the university so things arrived at the university in hard copy we then had to involve the police but online I must point out you know Jessie talking before about she wanted to keep a spreadsheet that's exactly how I felt because I was like I need to be aware here that all of this good stuff is being overshadowed so I did I started moving things into folders And actually what I found was that a quarter of the communication was negative. And within that quarter, there was the violent stuff. And then three quarters of the communication was incredibly positive. And I kept having to come back to that, to anchor myself to that. And the people that got in touch with me were just, were unbelievable. Some really significant members of society in Britain, both political figures, celebrities, etc., And I kept thinking, no, go back to the fact that the greatest response has been positive because the content of that, that 25% really could have overwhelmed me. And I I had to to keep reminding myself of that. So research is showing that cyber racism is actually getting worse, not better. And the audiences are becoming even more polarised. The big question then is, what do you think motivates cyber racism? Let's go to you, Rachel. What do you think about that? I think it's the space that exists between where you are physically and where the other person is. There's also that veil of anonymity that can be present within cyberspace. And I think it's it's maybe those people who wouldn't necessarily challenge you in person, but have more confidence to do so because of that space and the fact that that you are so disconnected from them in one sense they're protected unless they say something that is you know classified as racial hate they you know there's, there's no law against it and even if they do say something that's racially hateful trying to secure a prosecution is incredibly difficult with that veil of anonymity All of the things that were reported to the police in my situation, nothing was was followed up. Nothing could be done about any of it. So I think that just gives people more confidence that they can say what they like. 
And Jesse, your research has extensively looked into this. So what could you add there? Well, lots of things. I mean, I think that, you know, the rise in, in, if we want to call it cyber racism, but hateful expressions around race online is, it's not only increasing, but it's it's becoming uh, increasingly globalized. I mean, I think that's the the real thing that we have to pay attention to. I mean, when I was first starting this research in the late 80s and early 90s, I was looking at extremist white supremacist groups who were doing printed newsletters, and they would mail those out through the postal service to their followers. And all of that kind of analog communication took a very long time. And certainly there were international connections between people in the white supremacist movement at that time, but it just took much longer for them to connect to one another. Fast forward to, you know, the 2000s, and you start to have these violent extremists who find inspiration online for their violent attacks, and that spreads globally very quickly. So you have the um, attack in Norway, which and that shooter was inspired by reading online the attack from the mid-90s of the guy who blew up the building in Oklahoma City. But since the attack in Norway, there have been many more attacks around the globe. We have Christchurch in New Zealand. We have other ones in Europe. And so they're sort of pinging internationally much more quickly. And that, I think, is is really the, the most worrying thing. And And there's no... You know, there's very little international response to this, in part, I think, because the U.S. works as a kind of haven for hate speech. Um, and and we, you know, end up being the place that protects those doing this kind of harm online. And, and so I think that's really worrying. You know, the, the other thing I would say is that when we talk about cyber racism, we can't we can't wall it off from the rest of the world. We have a, a, a moment right now in politics in the U.S. when we have someone who's a resident of the presidency who is actively retweeting white supremacist accounts from his president of the United States Twitter account. Tonight, the White House is trying to explain why the president of the United States used his enormous platform to amplify this racist message. Around 7.30 this morning, the president retweeting this video to his 82 million followers. A man shouting white power in a golf cart displaying Trump 2020 campaign signs. So yes, cyber racism is expanding, is increasing, is you know, increasing in velocity, but it's also being powered by some of the most powerful individuals on the planet. So it's not just something that's, you know, if I see this phrase again, I'll, I'll, I'll cry out, but it's not just something happening in the dark corners of the internet. It's happening from the main street. It's happening from the White House. If you could predict the future, what is this going to do to societies, to kids growing up that are around this type of hateful content online Seeing it day in, day out, it's been legitimised and authorised by people in powerful positions. What's the impact of that going to be? I think if it goes on unchecked, then then we just are raising a whole other generation of children who are inured to both committing violence and to experiencing violence. And that that creates trauma in children. I was just listening to a physician talking about the impact of 
ad what do they call them adverse childhood experiences aces and every adverse childhood experience has these physical health impacts into adulthood so children who have these experiences of trauma and and racism as a trauma will have these adverse health effects as adults you know so we're just we're ignoring this reality right now in a way that's affecting generations to come and we really have to take i think a longer view of reducing this kind of harm yeah and before we move on to solutions i just want to jump back to again your experiences as you've spoken about so far today and you know as we've said based on your experiences of being targeted by trolls and and online abusers what advice would you give anyone out there who's listening who might be going through this now whether they're at school or as an adult you know what advice can you offer and are there any support services out there that can help people going through this in terms of support services, not none that I am aware of, none that I've had any kind of connection to um, or from. My advice for somebody in that situation is remember what your purpose is and remain aligned with that. In terms of abuse online, generally, it can be very, very easy to be swallowed up by it. And as I said before, that that little 25%, although significant, was smaller than the, the positive. It had been really easy to be swallowed up by that. And my advice to anybody who's, who's been abused online is to take every one negative comment and try and think of two positive comments that somebody has given you, whether that be online or whether that be in person. These things need to be counteracted. Don't allow yourself to be consumed with the negativity. And I think that that leads us to the final question, which is solutions. It's it's a tough one to ask because social media and the internet, it transcends cultures, nations, legal systems throughout the globe. But I'm going to ask it anyway. And we'll go over to Jesse first. What do you think can be done then? Maybe one practical step to challenge cyber racism. I really think there are two, two main places that we should be focusing our attention and those are platform companies that profit off of cyber racism and the second are governmental institutions that have the power if they work together globally to bring those platform companies to heal and i think that there's there's some promise in some of the legislation that's come out of the eu that's been modestly effective in sort of making the platform companies respond to to some of the ill effects of racism and hatred online. But we still have a very long way to go. But I think those two things, if we can get platform companies to see this as a problem and to respond to it, and if we can get some sort of international, intergovernmental uh, regulations in place. And I don't, I don't think it's so much about putting people in jail, but I think it's really about fines. I mean, I think the, the fines are what the companies respond to, and, and once they start responding to the fines, then they'll, they'll change their practices. Yeah, like, for example, in Germany, I think they've got big fines in for, for Facebook. And if there's sanctions in place, this is definitely one way to curb racism on their platforms. And Rachel, do you want to add anything 
further into the solutions for cyber racism? I think people are going to express racism in any form they can, on any platform they can. Something that was said to me by um, one of my one of our family friends, who's an older gentleman, he said, what I don't understand is when you register to be online, to have a profile somewhere, why are you not required to put in your name, your actual name and your address? You are required to put in an email address and that there's nothing that, you know, that's there that says it has to be true. And he said, I don't understand why that's not mandatory. So if you're so you are traceable. So for example, if you register for an online account where you buy things, then you are obviously traceable. So therefore, I think that that needs to happen, and that's something really, really simple. And when he said it, I was like, I've really no idea. I don't know how to answer that. But that would, I think, that would certainly reduce the number of keyboard warriors, as we refer to them, because they are then they're responsible, they're traceable, and they have to take accountability and they are accountable for what they say and they're they're contactable so therefore consequences are possible whereas this anonymity allows anybody to say anything at any time and i'm not suggesting that addresses need to be made public but i think certainly those platforms need to have access to that information should something like this happen so those people can be called to account and i'll just throw that back to jesse do you agree with this or are there any potential problems with losing anonymity? Are there any benefits to anonymity online? Yeah, you know, there have been actually um, a couple of newspapers. The newspapers or news sites in the U.S. used to have very extensive comment sections and several of them tried to deal with the abuse and racism at those comment sections by having people fill out their address before they could comment. And it wasn't very effective. And, I mean, the other... I mean, the other thing is that it, it, the political moment that we're in right now in the U.S. is that people are so emboldened in their racism that that they're putting, you know, banners in their yard. So, I mean, they're not they're not embarrassed. There's no consequence for them. I don't. I just don't think that adding their address is going to do anything. Like, I mean, like I mentioned, the the people that emailed me left their full signature line and their address in the emails. You know, including death and rape threats. So, I mean, they're. The address doesn't help because it doesn't. There's no consequence for them, based on it. But, but I think it would be. A, I think it's a barrier to registration, and that's why the platform companies don't want to use it. It's just another layer of, you know, form filling out before you get access to the site, and most people will just opt out. So it's it's it hurts the number of active users that the site will have, the platform will have. So that's why companies don't want to do it. So maybe it's about changing the systems, how these organisations operate. And also as well, one thing is education, isn't it? I think that if we educate the next generation coming through about hate speech, about what it constitutes, about what race is, what racism is, uh, systemic racism, if we start doing that, hopefully people's practice online might be different. Really about a whole transformation, you know, of culture and society. It's not... It's not merely education, but it's about transforming the way people look at the world, you know. We are in the optimum conditions for that right now, given that we've got horrendous people out there, presidents spouting hate speech all the time. 
we then had obviously the murder of, of George Floyd, all kinds of other stories have now come to light. And we've got this, I've said this repeatedly throughout this year, that I feel like 2020 is a pivotal moment in the debate around racism. So I think you're absolutely right, Dan. It's about education and the point that you made, Jesse, it's about tackling it all all levels. Mm-hmm. And I think now is the time. There's never been a better time. And I am I am significantly emboldened and reassured by what I've seen, particularly from eighteen to twenty five year olds in this country. Mm-hmm. I can only speak from a UK perspective in terms of my own personal experience. But the outpouring of support for anti racism that has momentum at the moment and it's up to us to keep that momentum going and to keep fighting the good fight. I'd just like to say thank you once again to Jesse and Rachel for speaking to us on the Talking Race podcast. And if you want to know more about online racism, check out Jesse's work, especially her 2009 book, Cyber Racism, White Supremacy Online and The New Attack on Civil Rights. Other recommended authors include Dana Boyd, Lisa Nakamura and check out the work of Hate Lab at Cardiff University. Once again, I'd like to thank our guests today and say thanks to all the guests that have featured on the Talking Race podcast series. And to you, thanks for listening. On behalf of Vinny and I, we hope you have taken something of interest and of value away from this series. It may have challenged some of your prior assumptions, furthered your knowledge, or even provided you an insight which you've now explored further. Race is a myth. It's a lie. It's an invention which is used to create and maintain systems of oppression. It's important that we keep talking about race.